Good morning, Lakeview Church. I hope that song gets stuck in your head. Be a winner at the game of life. We are in this series that we've been walking through over the last several weeks, and we're really just talking about different aspects of real life that we find in the game of life, and how do we adjust to those things that happen to us, that come our way, so that we can continue to be winners And the Lord said, let there be light, and there was light. So it's good to see your faces. Um, Where was I? Oh, yeah, we're talking about the game of life. This is the fourth week in the series, and today I want to talk to you about what happens when life throws you a curveball. And we're going to talk about that and uh, really walk through some scripture this morning from the book of 2 Corinthians. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. Everything that I'm going to share this morning will be on the screen. If you don't have a Bible and you would like to have a Bible, you can just talk to us after the service, visit our welcome desk in the lobby. We would love to share a Bible with you free of charge. And so all you got to do is stop by our welcome desk, ask for a Bible, and we'll make sure to put one in your hands. Now, before we go any further, I do want to just acknowledge that there's some people who are joining us online. And whether you're joining us live in this moment or on demand sometime later, we are so very glad that you're here. And I just believe that everybody here in the room wants to just welcome you and say hi. So congregation, can we welcome those who are joining us online today? Now, as I mentioned, uh, we're going to talk about what happens when life throws you a curveball and how do, we, how do we win and continue to win when life throws us a curveball. And I was actually doing a little bit of uh, reading on hitters that have struggled with the curveball. And don't worry, I'm not going to pick on any of your favorite players today. I'm, I blast from the past. I decided to go back in baseball history to when I was a kid. There was a guy named Mike Schmidt who played third base for the Philadelphia Phillies. He played between the years of 72 and 89. He was a, he's a Hall of Famer, one of the best third basemen to play the game ever. And Mike Schmidt was quite a hitter, hit a lot of home runs. Uh, I think 548 home runs he hit during his career and uh, was, was actually a really good hitter, not just from a home run standpoint, but always was producing runs for the team. So if he wasn't hitting home runs, he was hitting the ball in a way that got more runners in to home plate. And he was just that kind of hitter. But here's the thing. This guy who ended up being 12-time All-Star, three-time National League MVP, led his team to a World Series championship in 1980. This guy, at the beginning of his career, he was horrible at hitting the curveball. In fact, in his rookie season, he actually struck out like 136 times out of 367 at-bats. And almost every single one of those strikeouts was on the curveball. Now, most batters get out more than they get on base. Let's just be clear. If you, if you succeed one out of three times in baseball, you're awesome. Wouldn't it be great if the rest of life was like that, right? This guy, though, didn't just get out a third of the times his rookie season. He struck out, which is like the worst way to get out. I mean, if you hit a nice line drive and it gets caught, you can live with that. But you go up to the plate time after time after time, and those pitchers know that you can't hit the curveball. And they just throw you the curveball one more time, 
And, and sometimes they throw the curveball in a way that it starts in the strike zone. You think it's a good pitch. And then it darts out of the strike zone and you just look like an idiot up there swinging at a pitch that's way outside. Or, I don't even know if I've seen David Gray, but I'm going to pick on him this morning. You're like David Gray, who when someone throws a curveball at you, you just fall on the ground to hide because you think you're going to get hit because they throw it right at you. And then you're laying on the ground like David Gray was in Pony League Baseball. And then the ball just breaks right into the strike zone and the umpire calls it a strike. That happened to David Gray. He was testifying about that to me last week and, or confessing, I don't know. And there he is right there. Yeah, yeah. You're welcome, David. You're welcome. I just, I wanted to, I, I wanted to make sure that everyone in the church knew what you were feeling as I'm talking about curveballs this morning. So that's what happens when, you, when pitchers throw you a curveball. Sometimes you're swinging at a bad pitch because it's out of the strike zone. Sometimes you're off balance and backing up and it's breaking into the strike zone and you're not ready to hit it because you're off balance. It's hard to hit the curveball. But here's what Mike Schmidt did. Pitchers knew that he could not hit the curveball, so they would get ahead in the count and then they would throw him the curveball and strike him out. But Mike Schmidt was a great athlete. And so he adjusted and he adapted. He went to work. He learned to be a little more discerning at the plate, to be a little more patient. He engaged his stubborn will and decided that he wanted to be not just an okay player, not just someone who played in the major leagues once, but he wanted to be a great player, the best player he could be. So he adjusted and adapted, and he actually learned how to adjust to the curveball so that he could become a Hall of Fame third baseman one of the greatest hitters in the major league, 548 home runs. In his MVP year, 1980, when the Phillies won the World Series, he actually batted 267, which was one of his best years ever, and had 121 RBIs, 48 home runs. He had an amazing year, all because he learned how to hit the curveball. Now, here's the thing. Some of you don't have any clue about baseball, and that's fine. You've never seen a curveball in your life, and that's okay. But every single one of us in this room, baseball fan or not, you've faced curveballs. Because life throws them at you regularly. You lose your job that you thought you were going to have for a long time. There's a relationship in your life that you thought you could depend on, and then in the crucial moment, you found it wasn't the relationship that you thought it was. You go to the doctor, and you get a diagnosis you weren't expecting to receive. A tragedy hits your family. There's a betrayal. Someone that you thought would be faithful to you for your whole life has all of a sudden betrayed you and walked away from you and you find yourself in a very difficult and hard situation. Or you look at the world around you and there's stuff coming at you. There's things that are going on in the environment around you and you find anxiety and worry just welling up on the inside of you and you don't know what to do and you don't know how to deal with it and you're in the middle of one of those moments where life is throwing you a curveball. 
We all know what it's like, and if for some odd reason you've made it to this point in your life without a curveball, there's one of two things that has happened. You are just in denial, which is probably what really has happened, or you're really young. (laughs) And if that's you, just hold on. This message will be helpful to you at some point in the future, I promise, because life will throw you a curveball. And what are we supposed to do to adjust and adapt to these curveballs so that we can continue to win in life and not allow the curveball to embarrass us in life because we get knocked off balance or we're swinging at bad pitches and the enemy's having his way in our lives. So this morning, what I wanna do is I wanna do a Bible study with you. We've had some different messages in this series. One where I said, don't think sermon, think teaching, think we're having coffee together. This one, I want you to not think sermon, but I want you to think we're reading the Bible together because we're going to read a lot of the Bible over the next 20 or 30 minutes. So if you have a Bible, please open it up to 2 Corinthians, and we're going to start in chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is a letter written by a first century leader in the church named Paul. Paul was opposed to the church earlier in his life. God radically converted him, turned him around, sent him out to be a missionary for the church, to go to all of these Gentile places in the world that had never heard about Jesus, to go and the gospel there and then invite those people to be converted to begin to follow Jesus and then Paul would start a church he'd raise up leaders he'd travel to the next place and then he'd write letters back to the churches he had started to give them guidance and instruction and train them and develop them and so one of these letters is written to a church in Corinth in fact he wrote two letters 1 Corinthians was the first one, as you could imagine, and 2 Corinthians is the second one, and that's the one we're in today. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're going to begin reading in verse 7. This is what verse 7 says. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now, I want to just pause there and ask two questions that this verse, I think, encourages us to ask, what is the treasure and what is the jar of clay? What is the treasure and what is the jar of clay? I think the answer to the first question is found in verses five and six. So if you're reading in 2 Corinthians chapter four, just go back up now to verse five. This is what it says. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. So pause for a moment. Really important to understand You're not the treasure. You're not the treasure. Our world would tell you, you're all that. You're the treasure. I'm telling you right now, you're not the treasure. Paul says, we don't preach ourselves. That's not the treasure. The treasure is Jesus. Thank you. I'm glad one person is with us. Some of you are like, I'm not the treasure? What? (laughs) Yeah, you're not the treasure. Jesus is. Jesus Christ as Lord is the treasure that is now embedded in our lives if we are followers of Jesus. When we ask the question, what is the treasure? The treasure is Jesus. We have this treasure, and it's not you. It's Jesus, the one who is now in you. 
Continue reading. It says, and we see ourselves as servants, your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, let light shine out of darkness. He's the one that made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And then verse seven, we have this treasure. What's the treasure? Jesus Christ and the glory that he displays in our lives. That's the treasure. And God has embedded that in your life and in mine, which brings us to the second question. What's the jar of clay? You are. I am. One commentator says that Paul is so clear here to use language about Jesus that's so high and so elevated and so lifted up, and then he chooses one of the most easily breakable instruments to refer to us. Some of you are like, I hate this message. What's the next message in the series? I just want to be really clear. When you think about dealing with curveballs, it starts by recognizing just how high Jesus is and just how high you're not. Because you're just a human being and he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You're, you're just a frail human, a breakable receptacle. Something that could easily be destroyed. And for whatever reason, God has taken this treasure of Jesus and the glory of God displayed in the face of Jesus, and he's put that in this breakable receptacle called our humanity. Why would God do that? This verse, I think, asks us those questions. What's the treasure and what's the jar of clay? But the real question is why? And verse seven gives us the answer. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show that the all-surpassing power is not from you. Your reason for existence is not to bring glory to yourself. Your entire reason for existence is so that the glory and the power of God can be displayed in your frail, weak, broken humanity. And we need this message in our culture today because I think our culture has a view of humanity that is too high. Our culture is saying, you can be God of your own life. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to end poorly every time you try. You are not that good. We are jars of clay, and God made it that way so that he could show his all-surpassing power through our lives. And we're just getting started. We got like four more chapters to go through, so... We got to keep moving here. Keep reading. Verse 8. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. So if you're wondering, does Paul know anything about curveballs? He's just giving you a list right here. I mean, it's not a fun list. Well, this is one of the greatest church leaders the world has ever known. 
He was a missionary, multiple missionary journeys, planted churches all over the known world at that time, wrote most of the New Testament, had wonderful experiences with God where he was closer to God than most of us just even dream about being. And yet Paul, when he looks at his life, he says, we're hard pressed on every side. We're crushed, we're not crushed, we're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. He says, but we do this so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body so then death is at work in us but life is at work in you. I think there's a foundational principle here that we need if we're going to be able to adjust and adapt to the curveballs of life. And the first foundational principle is we have to understand the death-life paradox. And here's the death-life paradox. At the very same time, we are dying and becoming alive. At the very same time, we're dying and we're coming alive at the very same time. It's a paradox. doesn't make any sense, but it actually makes a whole lot of sense if you believe the scriptures. Because what, what Paul is trying to say here is, listen, we're gonna face a whole bunch of things in our life that are gonna come at us, and they're gonna, they're gonna snuff the physical life out of us, hard-pressed on every side. We're, we're perplexed. We're, we're a, feel like we're abandoned sometimes. We're being persecuted sometimes. We're facing hardship. We are always being given over in our body to death. But... At the very same time, the life of Jesus is being demonstrated through our mortal bodies. It's, it's death happening at the same time life is happening. We're, we're dying physically, but we're coming alive spiritually. Both of those things are happening at exactly the same moment in our lives. It's really important for us to understand this because because I think we go through our life and we don't think we should ever have to face anything hard or do anything hard or deal with anything hard. So when hard things come against us, often what we do is we, we pray to God and we ask him to take it away. God, remember, I'm one of your kids. Nothing hard should ever happen to me. Except Jesus said in this world, you will have trouble. And so when God doesn't take it away, oftentimes we get mad at God and we run away from the situation trying to escape it because we think we deserve to be out of the hard time. Except God never, ever, ever made any such promise to you. Sometimes God wants you to just stay in the hard place where you are. And we miss what God wants to do because we run away from the hard place or even worse, we blame God. Some of you are here today and you have a grudge against God because you went through a time in your life where you felt pressed in on every side and you prayed to God and you had an expectation. You felt God owed you something. And God didn't pay you what you think he owed you. 
And because the situation didn't go the way you wanted it to go, now you have a grudge against God because you think God, you, you deserve something from God that he didn't give you. But what if, what if all of that stuff that we go through in this life is just the price we pay for the space we occupy? What if hard stuff in life is just what it means to be human? You go to the doctor and you get a bad report. Yeah, you were gonna die anyway. You were human. You, you didn't have an expectation you were gonna live forever on this earth, did you? I mean, we're always dying from the moment we're born. Right? Some of you woke up this morning and you didn't have any aches or pains. That's because you're 18. Okay? <laughs> Some of you woke up this morning and you had pain in a place you did not even know you had until this morning. I'm not going to put an age to that. Okay? I'll let you figure out what age that is. That's because we're dying. Our bodies are wasting away. Paul talks about it in the next verse, verse 16, actually. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. It's just happening. Our bodies are not going to last forever. They're going to wear out. They're going to decay. They're, they're going to fall apart. That's what it means to be human. And our world fights against that we got all kinds of things that we can do now to make you at least think you're younger. But even all that stuff, it cannot fix the ultimate problem that you have. You're a human being, and you're going to die. Unless Jesus comes back, you're going to die. It's just the reality. We are wasting away. But listen to what Paul says next. Yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. What's he mean? He means that even though our bodies are in decay and decline and wasting away, at the very same time, the life of Jesus is just growing and growing and growing. So two things can be true at the same time. Your body can be dying, but you can be living more and more and more. And if you're a follower of Jesus, we ought to die well. We ought to die well. Because life is literally swallowing up our mortality. When we breathe our last breath here, it's not the end. Oh no, the widest door just opened and you just stepped into life like you've never experienced before. Because two things are happening at the same time, death and life. Death is happening, we're decaying, we're declining, but the life of Jesus is growing. Which brings me to a second point that I think we need as the foundation if we're gonna deal with curveballs. And this it's this battle that takes place between the mortal and immortality. This is the battle between earthly living and eternal living. And you can see it in chapter five, if you keep reading in 2 Corinthians. He says in verse one of chapter five, for we know that if the earthly tent, 
that we live in, in other words, this body that we live in right now is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven. I want you to note that there's two different words used here. There's a word that is temporary, our earthly tent, and then there's a word that has a lot more permanence, our eternal house. It's intentional. This body that we're in right now, it's not going to last forever. It's going to die. It's going to decay. Right? You, you came from dust, and to dust you will return. Right? That's the mortal part. But there is an immortal part that's happening for those of us who are followers of Jesus. This, this life that we have here coming to an end is life that's beginning there. And we're going to get another body someday. It's the earthly versus the eternal. Let's keep reading in this, in chapter five. It says, meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Paul's saying, listen, there's this other better place, other dwelling we're gonna get, and life in the body, it's not always fun. We groan, he says, we, we can't wait. We can't wait to get there. It's gonna be wonderful. But listen to what he says next. He says, for while we are in this tent, we groan and we're burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. There's that picture of life just swallowing up the death that we're experiencing in this body. All happening at the same time. Then he says, now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God. In other words, God created you in this human body and eventually his life is gonna overtake the death and decay of your earthly body and he created you for there. That's what God has for each and every one of us. Not, not here, but there. That's what we were made for. God fashioned us for this purpose Let's keep reading. He's given us his spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord for we live by faith and not by sight. We're confident, I say, and we would prefer to be away from this body and at home with the Lord. That ought to be the hope of every single one of us today. I mean, if, if you have that perspective, what can the world do to you? I mean, what can they do to you? They, they're going to kill you? Okay. Bring it on. Because if you take me out of this body, I'm going to be with the Lord. That seems pretty good to me. And if you're going to leave me here, I'm just going to live for him. Until that day comes, right? What can you do if you have this perspective? You're going to win. It is a win-win. That's what Paul's getting at here. And then he says, so we're confident. I prefer to be away from the body at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Here's the tension of what we're talking about right now. We are made for eternal living. Which means earthly living is not our goal. It's not the end game. 
right? As much as we love our lives, right? And I'm just going to tell you, I, like, I love watching hockey games. I hope there's hockey in heaven. Please, God. Streets of gold, but also ice rinks. Please, please. Where my team always wins the Stanley Cup. That's what I want. Right? There are things in this earth we love, and there's nothing wrong with that. But as long as you know that you weren't made for this place, it's temporary, and your life on the radar screen of human history is just a blip. Scripture talks about it as a mist. It just fades away. It's so here today, gone tomorrow. It's quick. It's short. Even if you live the longest life anyone's ever lived, it's still short in comparison. You're made for there. Earthly living isn't the goal, but here's the thing. Earthly living matters. So this isn't, we were made for heaven, eat, drink, and be merry here. No, live for God. Why? Because the way you live your life in this human body is a reflection of the treasure that God put inside of you. This is why it matters so deeply how we live our lives. The philosophies we use to direct our actions, the, the decisions we make about human sexuality, the decisions we make about how we're gonna treat issues of gender in our culture, all of it, it should never start with our opinion on the matter. We always have to come back to the scriptures and say, what do the scriptures say? Because we are living to please the Lord. We're not living to please ourselves or honor some God out there in culture who isn't the real God. No, we are living for the one who made us. And he didn't make us for here. He made us for there. But the way we live here matters because we are reflecting the treasure of Jesus that has been put inside of us, which is why Paul reminds them, just remember, you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I want to just say this to every single one of us. The way you live your life in the body, it matters. It matters. You got to live the way God wants you to live, period. Because you have a treasure inside of you and the way you live your life in this body reflects on that. I got to move fast and I wish I had a lot more time, but I got to keep going. Let's go to first, or 2 Corinthians chapter 11 because this is where Paul starts now to get personal. He says, I've worked much harder and I'm starting to read in verse 23. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I've worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. And you thought you were having a bad week. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Some translations say that uh, he was stoned three times. And one lady said to her, Pastor, well, at least he got some relief. Not that kind of stoned. They actually threw rocks at him. So, and some of you are like, I can't believe. Yeah, it's funny. You can go ahead and laugh. It's all right. Dory's with me, I know. I can hear that laugh, Dory. I can hear that laugh. He says, I was shipwrecked. 
I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in the country, at sea, in danger from false believers. I've labored and I've toiled and I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin? and I do not inwardly burn. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying, I get curveballs thrown at me all the time. This life that I'm living fully for God as a missionary, traveling around the world, telling people about Jesus, starting churches, and writing the New Testament, all that stuff that I'm doing in the middle of all of that, life isn't the way I wanted it to be. Because life is hard. And just because we're living for God, that doesn't make it easy. Sometimes it's harder because we're living for God. And that's what Paul's saying here. Keep reading in 2 Corinthians 12. I must go on boasting, although there's nothing to be gained. He says, I'm going to talk about visions and revelations. And he spends a couple of verses talking about a man who was called up into this high heaven, had this vision of God. He doesn't know if he was in the body or out of the body. It's kind of a strange verse or two. And you might ask me, what do these verses mean? And I'm going to tell you, I don't know. It's weird. It's strange. It's odd. And Paul actually just admits, I don't know about all of this, but I could talk about that man and boast about him because of what he's experienced. And then Paul says, even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. He says, but I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. This is Paul, leader of the early church, close to the Lord. He says, Lord, take it away. And the Lord says, no. And Paul asks again, and the Lord says, no. And Paul asks one more time, and the Lord says, no. I'm not taking that away from you. You will live with that. Curveballs aren't always temporary. Sometimes they're just the things that we have to live with and deal with in our lives, period. Because in this human body, we will face trouble and difficulty and hardship. It's just part of the journey. This is what he says. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, and this is the key verse for today, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Some of you have never experienced the full power of God at work in your life because you're unwilling to admit your weaknesses. And the only thing that can limit the power of God is your desire to remain strong. But when you admit your weakness, in that moment, God says, okay, there's a humble heart. I like to pour grace on those kind of people. And then his grace, which is sufficient, is poured out, and his strength is made perfect. So Paul says this, therefore... 
I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, and look at this next line, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Now we are out of time for this message, but I still got more to share with you, so I'm just gonna keep going. I'll go quick though. Paul changed his perspective on hardships in life. He stopped seeing them as setbacks and he started seeing them as opportunities. Instead of seeing them as moments that were meant to oppress him and keep him down from living his best life, Paul said, here's another opportunity for the grace of God and the power of God to be put on display for the world around me. And because of that, these curveballs that were coming into Paul's life with a lot of regularity didn't knock him off balance. They didn't make him swing at bad pitches. They actually just gave him an opportunity to put the glory of God on display in greater ways than he ever could in his own power or strength as a human being. We have to change the way we think about curveballs and hardships and difficulties in life. And to do it well, we need three perspectives. I'm gonna go fast. The first one, we need an eternal perspective. We need an eternal perspective. Paul says this, he says that these light and momentary troubles that I'm experiencing, you gotta understand, there's nothing light about them. Shipwrecked, imprisoned, beaten, He's got snakes biting him. I mean, if you read Paul's story, he, he can't catch a break. And they weren't momentary. They lasted a long time. But yet when Paul thinks about his troubles, which in human terms were hard and they lasted a long time, he says light and momentary. Nothing to them. How in the world can Paul say that? Because Paul has an eternal perspective. He's like, yeah, my life, it's not great. Shipwreck, prison, beaten with stones, flogged. I mean, you name it, he's gone through it multiple times. He's got the scars to prove it. But when he thinks about his life and all the hardship and all the persecution and all the trial, he says, light and momentary compared with what? The glory that outweighs them all. Paul understands that one day his life in the body will come to an end. And when it does, he will be fully alive like he's never been alive before. And that life is going to last forever and ever and ever. And he's going to be in the presence of God. And when he's in the presence of God, for all of eternity and he looks back on the blip on the radar screen of human history to see his life in the body he's going to say that was nothing and you will too you will too because when you spend all of eternity in the presence of God the stuff you're dealing with today as hard and as heavy as it might seem it's just light and it's momentary because you're going to live forever in the presence of God. And when you get there, it's going to be worth it all. I'm telling you. 
You need an eternal perspective. Secondly, you need a resurrection perspective. You need a resurrection perspective. Paul talks in this letter that he's writing, this earthly tent, man, it's going away. And, and good news, good news, there's, there's a, a heavenly house that we're gonna dwell in. We're gonna trade the mortal body for the immortal body. And in that moment, when, when the trumpet of God sounds and Jesus returns, those who have died, they're going to be raised again, and they're going to get new bodies. And those of us who remain alive in that moment, our bodies are going to be changed in a moment, in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. And we will be clothed with the immortal. And in that moment, we will live forever. And, and I'm telling you right now, I know some of you, you've gotten a diagnosis from the doctor. You're going through treatment. You're wondering, am I going to survive this? You might, but you might not. God owes you nothing. He already gave his son to redeem you and make a way for you to live with him for all of eternity. And he owes you nothing else. I remember when I was a college student, my, my nephew's here, he, he's a freshman at Indiana Wesleyan. He's just starting his college career. When I was his age, my grandfather died with cancer. And I remember in that moment thinking, what kind of God do I serve? Doesn't he know how hard I've prayed for healing for my grandfather? And my grandfather was a godly man. How in the world could God let a godly man die? And I struggled with that for a long time. And some of you have had the same kind of struggle. But I'm telling you right now, the reason I struggled is because I thought this life mattered more than that one. This life is temporary and it means so little compared with what that's going to be about. I know what you're going through today might be hard. It might be heavy. It might be difficult. You might be facing persecution and trial and judgment. I'm telling you right now, just hold on because while that's happening and your body's decaying and you're wasting away on the outside and facing the hardships that come with being a jar of clay, I'm telling you right now, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And while you're dying, the life inside of you is growing. And you're going to live forever if you're a follower of Jesus. And it's going to be worth it. Paul had an eternal perspective. He had a resurrection perspective. He had a grace perspective. Paul gets to a place in his journey where he realizes, man, being a human, it's hard. Persecutions, trials, hardships, difficulties, they're coming at him all the time. But he had learned something. And it's the key he learned that in those moments of hardship and difficulty and trial, weakness, if he, could, if he could instead of showing himself to be strong, saying, I got this, I've been through, I've been shipwrecked before, no big deal, I can handle this. Oh, they're gonna throw stones at me again? Yeah, I've done that before, it's no big deal, I can handle that, I'm strong enough. No, Paul learned that it's not in being strong that we access the power of God. It's in being weak. It's recognizing, man, we're just human beings. 
and we're not that strong and we're not that capable and we're not that smart, we're not that wise and we're not that powerful. We actually don't have what it takes. And in a world that tells you, don't ever let them see you sweat. In a world that tells you, you could be a superhero. You could be invincible. You can stand strong. You can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can be tough in that situation. You can make the hard call in that decision. You can be all of that. I'm telling you right now, that is not the way to access the power of God. The way to access the power of God is to say, oh God, I need you. Oh, how I need you. Because I'm just a human being and I don't have strength and I don't have power and I don't have energy and I don't have what it takes. But God, your strength is enough. Your grace is enough. And so I delight in my humanity that I'm not strong enough to stand. That my body is wasting away. I delight in that. Not because it's fun, not because it's easy, not because it's enjoyable, but because it gives me an opportunity every moment of every day to access your grace. And his grace is always sufficient. Oh, it's always sufficient. And when you get to that place, his strength gets made perfect. And when his strength gets made perfect, guess what happens? Everyone around you gets to see the treasure hidden in the jar of clay. Jesus Christ, the glory of God displayed in his face. You get to put that on display for the world to see. And they know it's not because you're great. It's because you serve a great God. And you've embraced your weakness and his grace is just being poured out in your life. Now this morning we're gonna celebrate communion, but before we do that, I wanna give us just an opportunity to have a moment of reflection. Because some of you came into this room today and you're in the middle of a hard, hard season. The trial, the circumstance, the weight, the heaviness, it's on your shoulders. The diagnosis, the relationship, the bank account, the, the problem at work, whatever it is, your failing body, whatever it is, you're feeling the weight of it right now. I'm just telling you right now, hear the words of God. My grace is all you need. My grace is all you need. That's, that's his word to you today. Just embrace your weakness. Delight in it. Not because it's fun or enjoyable, but because it's an opportunity, a doorway to just say, pour out your grace in my life one more time. And make yourself known. And God, even if you don't take this hardship away, would you show the treasure to those around me so they can see Jesus? Some of you came in this morning to this room and maybe you're not in a hard season right now, but you went through a hard season sometime in your past. And in that moment, you thought God owed you something. 
to take that hard situation away, to remove that circumstance from your life, to set you free from any pain or hardship or difficulty. And he didn't do it the way you wanted it to be done. And you have been holding that against God. So much so that bitterness has formed in your heart. You're still coming to church. You're still kind of playing the game, putting on the show. But in your heart of hearts, if you're really honest, you know that you hold something against God today because he didn't do something the way you wanted it done when you wanted it done because you thought he owed that to you. What if today you forgave God? I know for some of you that sounds weird. Why would God need to be forgiven? He didn't do anything wrong. Well, if you think he owes you something that he didn't pay you, you've got to let that debt go. I don't think it's a real debt because I don't think he owes you anything, but you're treating him that way. And I want to just encourage you this morning, just let that debt go. Your soul has become calcified and hard because you're holding on to bitterness towards God. And I'm just asking you today, if you'll, if you'll just respond, just let God heal your heart today. I think he wants to just get rid of all that hardness, that bitterness. And I think you could step into a new season with God that would be completely different from anything you've ever experienced before if you'll just let him do that work in your life. So this morning, I want to just encourage you to bow your heads, close your eyes just for a moment. And if you're here this morning and you're in a hard season and you need to just have the grace of God in your life, all I'm going to ask you to do is just raise your hand. Just say, I'm in a hard season right now and I need God's grace. I want to pray for you. So if that's you, just raise your hand hands going up all over, all over the place. Yeah. God, you see every raised hand right now. I just pray, God, in these moments, you would meet them right where they are, that you would remind them that you are with them in the struggle and that your grace is all they need. It's all they need pour out your grace, Lord, even as they were acknowledging the weakness that they have right now, Lord, I just pray that you would meet them in that moment of weakness, meet them in that place of surrender, and God, pour out your grace and perfect your strength and demonstrate your glory and show Jesus through their lives right now in that circumstance. God, I pray that you'd take the circumstance away. I don't think there's anything wrong with praying that, but God, if you don't take it away, help them to stand in it. Give them your grace today. And now I wonder if there's anybody in this room who's carrying that bitterness that I talked about. I'm not gonna embarrass you or call you out. I'm not gonna invite you to come forward. I just... I just want to pray a special prayer for you. And if you would say, you know what, I, I have some bitterness towards God and I want to release that right now. And I want to ask God to heal me from that and help me move to a new place in my spiritual journey. If that's you this morning, would you just raise your hand and say, I need God to heal that in me and I need to let God off the hook. Yeah. Anyone else? 
God, we're just praying today for your grace to be poured out on every life right now that's just saying, God, I've held something against you. I've harbored bitterness. I've, I've, I've expected that you should have paid me something when you really didn't owe me anything. God, I just pray for my brothers and sisters today in this room who have raised their hand in this moment. I pray, God, that that raised hand would just be a release, a letting go of it. And I pray, God, right now that your word would become true in their lives, that you would take their heart of stone and you would replace it with a heart of flesh, that you would give to them a soul that is freshly tilled soil, ready to receive every single thing that you have for them. And I pray, God, that you as their healer would pour out healing grace on their life like never before. Do a work in them, I pray. And God, now for all of us, as we turn our attention to communion, Lord, I just ask you to meet with us. And as we receive elements of communion, would you pour out grace in our lives? We give you these moments and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Now, when you came in this morning, you should have received communion elements. If you didn't, we have some people ready to serve you. Uh, so if you need one, would you just raise your hand? And uh, our team's coming right now. Just keep your hand up until you receive one. Keep your hand up until you receive the elements so we can make sure everybody has them. those hands up. We're almost to you. For those of you who already have elements, I want to encourage you, if you would, just to peel that top layer back and that will reveal the wafer. I'd love for you to just go ahead and get that in your hand now. We're going to pray to consecrate these elements, and then I'm going to guide us through this time. So God, right now with these elements in our hands, we're just praying for you to add your blessing and your favor to each one of these elements. Lord, to this wafer, which represents your broken body, and this cup, which represents the blood that you so freely shed for our sins so that we could have life. Lord, we're asking you to bless and consecrate these elements and use them for your purposes in our lives right now. We give these moments to you and we give ourselves to you. 
Do you hold that wafer in your hand? Remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he blessed it, he gave it to his disciples, and he told them that this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. We have hope today because Jesus' body was broken. So as you take this wafer this morning and you eat this, do so in remembrance of what Christ has done for you and feed on him in your hearts with thanksgiving. Let's eat together. There's a second tab on that cup and you can pull that back revealing the juice and again remembering that after they had finished eating that night Jesus took the cup he blessed it he gave it to his disciples and he said this is the blood of the new covenant shed for you for the forgiveness of sins as we drink this this morning let's remember Jesus blood was shed for us so that we could be forgiven and made whole let's drink together God, we're so grateful for your grace and your mercy in our lives, grateful for what Jesus has done for us and the way that he has redeemed us, changed us the way he's doing work in us even right now. God, we praise you, we thank you, we honor you. And we just, God, want to give you all the glory, all the glory because you're deserving of it. And we pray this right now in Jesus' name, amen.